Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison. And I'm Meredith. Today's the last day of school. <laughs> Today's the last day of school. Greggy, put your shoes on. <laughs> I don't have to hear that until September. Greg, you're going to be late. It makes me so happy to not have to make school lunches. So It makes me so happy to... Not have to listen to me get them ready? Not have to listen to you get the kids ready in the morning. I like get all nervous and sweaty and like, oh, I don't want to go to school. And then I'm like, no, it's not school. It's work, which is worse. <laughs> but um, let's just jump right into the case. Jump in, girl. Richard James Heron was the son of a Mexican mother and an Irish father. His father abandoned the family when Heron was just three years old. He grew up in an extremely poor neighborhood in East L.A. He went to Abraham Lincoln High School and played baseball and football. For his summer job throughout high school, he worked at his stepfather's pawn shop. He attended mass regularly with his mother, and he graduated from high school number one in his class of 415 students, and he was the valedictorian. So he's pretty smart. His IQ. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, Exactly like you. Mm -hmm. Same, Same with the IQ, too. He had an IQ of 150. Oh, wow. So that puts him in the, yeah, highly gifted category. Yes. And he applied to a bunch of schools, and he was one of only 1,019 men accepted to the Yale class of 1975. Once he got to Yale, there was a big difference in Heron. He struggled academically, and he had to attend summer school in his senior year just to graduate. Now, he didn't necessarily slack off completely he just had other interests so he was focused more on his sports clubs on campus playing his guitar watching movies and hanging out with his friends and he was still very devoted to the catholic faith so he was still going to mass all the time so i mean i guess that's considered slacking off right well it's different right so when you go to college I feel like everybody slacks off a little bit because you start to get you know start getting into the social aspects you're on your own now. It's 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 a learning experience, but I don't think you can really like slack off in Yale. Agreed. So that's probably not a, a thing that you want to do. You know, it's different. You know, when I went right. to college, okay, I slacked off a little bit the first semester, and then you make up for it, and you know. But but Yale's a different story. Well, so I never heard of this. This is a Yale thing. Bladder ball. It's like some aggressive ball game meant to get out some frustrations and all that. Oh my God, never heard of it. And me either, but it's like just a Yale thing, so it makes sense we've never heard of it. I believe Harvard has something similar. (laughs) I don't even think I know anybody that went to Yale. Me either. So bladder ball, it's like a thing. And the day, it was November 1st, 1974. And I guess there's like some formal thing after. So Heron didn't have a date. So he went to the movies with a friend. And on the way home, Heron and his friends started singing songs from the movie, and they just started basically like serenading all the bladder ball people. And at around two in the morning, Bonnie Garland walked by with some friends, and she just started singing with them. She's a singer, and she started singing with them, and this is where the two of them met. Okay. So Bonnie Garland grew up in Brazil. So her father was from here, but then went to Brazil to practice law. 
Then her family moved back to the U.S. and she attended a private school in Virginia. And then her family settled in Scarsdale, New York, Mm. which is pretty affluent. Yes. She was a few years younger than Heron. She was only 17 and she had just started Yale when they met and he had been there for a few years. Right. Well, the two started a really serious relationship and fell in love. And it seemed like they both really adored each other. Sounds good so far. Yeah. She's coming from a pretty sheltered life. Sheltered in Brazil, then at a private school, then Scarsdale's not like, you know, you're not living on the edge there. Right. So here's some background information on Bonnie's family. Her father, so this is like Heron, her father went to Yale on a scholarship, though, and he supported himself during those years as a dishwasher and worked in a library. He ended up graduating summa cum laude and second in his class. He then went on to Harvard Law School, and after law school, he moved to Brazil and practiced law. So he met Bonnie's mother, and she was the daughter of an apartment superintendent. Bonnie's mother, while raising her four children, also got her master's degree in human genetics. The family's seeming pretty dang smart. Mm-hmm. As Heron and Bonnie's relationship progressed, Bonnie's grades started to drop, which happens, right? Right. You start to focus on the boy. After Heron graduated and left campus in August of 1975, he continued to profess his love for Bonnie during this separation, because he then went off to Texas to graduate school, they kept in touch with phone calls and letters. And in one letter, he just wrote, I love you 125 times. That's it? That's it. Just I love you. In one letter. Just mm. a, little, a little bizarre. Yeah. He also convinced her, pressured her to speed up her graduation process by taking more classes so that they could get married faster. This meant, obviously, more stress for Bonnie. Extra classes at Yale is not a joke. No. And she was also doing private voice lessons, singing in the Glee Club and some other choirs. So it's it's a lot on her plate. Right. And her parents don't really like Heron. Hmm. Um, they're seeing the crazy romance, the change in their daughter. And when he's, you know, he's come to the house and they've met him, he's very closed off. He really doesn't volunteer much information. It's not very personable. So they're finding it hard to connect with him. Okay. By Bonnie's third year at Yale, this pressure was just too much. She was mentally and physically exhausted. She started to sleep through her alarm and miss her classes. She was also almost binge eating and she gained a ton of weight. Then she failed a class, which was not like her. And then her parents made her start seeing a psychiatrist. Mm. So that was in March of 1977. She's still seeing him at this time. Yes. Or not not physically seeing him, but he's in Texas. Right. Okay. Without Heron around, Bonnie does meet someone else. And at this time, she also withdrew from Yale. She took a leave of absence. Oh, my God. She needs to just go home. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, March 1977, she met someone else while she was out with her friends. In April was the prom, which I didn't have a prom in college, did you? Um, No, it was like a I, we had semi-formals, but they were also like Greek semi-formals. Oh, oh, see, we didn't have a Greek system. I thought it was interesting. I don't think Yale does, but they had a prom anyway. 
in April and he actually, Heron flew in from Texas to be Bonnie's date because she hasn't told him yet about, about the other man. Okay. Now in May, a month later, the Glee Club that she was a part of was touring Europe. So now she's really far geographically from Heron and obviously it's harder to keep in touch in the 70s when you're literally right. continents away from each other. Right, And that's weird because I keep forgetting this was the 70s. Right. Okay. And I believe the new guy is also in the Glee Club or in what he's also on this tour. So things start getting more serious with them. In late June of 1977, Bonnie made up her mind that she needed to end her relationship with Heron. So while she was in Europe, she wrote him a letter saying that she was no longer looking forward to being married to him and that she was dating someone else. Hmm. Heron receives this letter as he's packing to move to Washington, D.C., where he was going to do some Ph.D. program at George Washington University. So he's not like his faltering academically at Yale. He still ended up going to a graduate program in Texas right? and now a Ph.D. program. So he's got to be doing all right. I would think so. You know, if he's like one of those slackery kind of people, the longer you stay in school, the less you have to experience the real world. So that could also be what he was doing. You know, like I'd still be in freaking school. If I could. <laughs> so he gets this letter, right? And he, instead of going to DC, he flies to New York to talk to Bonnie. Meanwhile, Bonnie's family is getting to know the new guy. And he was actually staying with them for the 4th of July holiday. Bonnie, her father and her new boyfriend went out on the family boat. And at this point, Heron calls the house. Bonnie's mother answered, because they don't know he's planning on coming by. And she told him that Bonnie wasn't there and that she was out on the boat. And she also told him that there was another man staying at the house. That Bonnie's got somebody else here. Right, right. So bug off. But he says, I'm at the Hartsdale train station. And Hartsdale is basically right by Scarsdale. Right by Scarsdale, right. He's there. He's upset that she's got someone there. He's on the phone with her mother, which I found odd since she didn't really care for him, that they would talk on the phone a bit. But he had nowhere to go, so I'm sure she was feeling badly for him. She told him that he'd have to figure out where to go, but he could come in the meantime, stay with them. So he did make plans to go on Friday out with some friends for the weekend, but he was having to stay with them for a few nights. Oh my God, could you imagine that? The awkwardness. Oh, my God. And I'm wondering, I couldn't find it anywhere, but I'm wondering, did the other guy leave or was he also still staying at the house? I I don't know. You tell me. You know about the case. Well, I don't know. I don't know that. But that's what I was thinking in my head. I was like, I mean, it's he's not really, not that he's not relevant, but he's not relevant. But I thought that would be an interesting thing to know. Does the ex-boyfriend show up at the door while the new boyfriend's having a great time with dad on the boat? I mean, it's just weird. Of course it's weird. Yeah. I mean, that's horrible. Bonnie talks to him. She wants to let him down easy. She doesn't want to hurt his feelings because she cares about him. But she was very clear that it was over. And her mother, like I said, told Heron that she needed him gone by Friday because Bonnie was starting summer classes because she had taken the leave from Yale, but she had to take some classes. 
So the mom didn't want her distracted over the weekend with any drama from right. him. Right, of course. On Wednesday night, Bonnie and Heron went to bed, separate rooms, like he was down the hall. Okay. And he said he was flipping through a Sports Illustrated magazine when it just came to him that he had to kill Bonnie and then commit suicide. Okay. Did he say this to her or to himself? To himself. He just okay. realized it. They both went to their separate rooms. They weren't together. At around 2 in the morning... While everyone else was asleep, Heron crept into the kitchen of their Scarsdale house, and he found a claw hammer. He wrapped it in a yellow towel and left it outside Bonnie's bedroom. He went into her room to make sure she was asleep. Then he went back out, got the hammer and the towel. He came back into the room, put them under her bed, and again made sure that she was sleeping. Then he hit her with the hammer at least three times, smashing her larynx and skull. Oh my god. That's mm-hmm. violent. Yeah, it's bad. Ugh. And meanwhile, nobody knows this happened. It's the middle of the night. Right. So he and he's leaves doing the it house. While he she's takes sleeping, so she doesn't yeah. have a chance to scream or fight or. Ugh. No, if I get cracked with a hammer, claw hammer, in your larynx and skull, do you know how painful that is? I mean, sounds just stupid. I don't know. Do you remember the last time you got smashed in the larynx and the skull? It pretty much, it probably hurt. Well, so he does this and then he takes one of their cars and drives around aimlessly. And then he ends up about an hour away outside of a church in Coxsackie, New York. Now that's, so that's about a hundred miles north. Yeah, I was going to say about that's, a, miles. that's a long drive because I know when I used to go up to a conference up, the, up, like in up upstate New York, mm-hmm. when we got to Coxsackie, it was pretty far. So you're you're driving for that long and you're just driving and you just go heading north? Like, did he even know where he was going? No. And he ended up outside of a church and he waited there for a few hours to get up the courage to go in and talk to the priest. And he did end up going inside and he told the priest, I just killed my girlfriend. Now, my question to you is, is confessing to a priest, Does is that like confidential like I always thought like if if you say something to a lawyer right Mm -hmm. if I went and I said to a lawyer I killed my girlfriend or my boyfriend would I be like covered under a confidentiality thing or does now does he have to tell well first of all you'd have to have retained that lawyer right so you'd have to have paid them something okay or signed something so that like if you told me something I'm not bound by that just because I'm a lawyer but I'm for a priest I think that the lawyer can break that confidentiality if you're going to do something like if I if you tell me I'm going to go murder Mr. J and you've got some plans and and that's the same with a psychiatrist then we have we can we have to tell right right you can't like tell me you're going to go kill somebody and I do nothing that's not okay so I'm thinking it's similar with a priest I'm wondering if after talking to him maybe a little bit, he wasn't 100% sure she was dead. So maybe he thought we could save her still. So I'm going to tell the police. Maybe he said to Richard, hey, listen, I'm going to go call the police. I don't know. He could have said that. Maybe Heron wanted him to call the police. Right. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it was a a, a agreed upon type of response. I don't know. I was just curious. It's understandable. Curiosity. The priest called the local police who, you know, in Coxsackie, who then alerted the Scarsdale police. 
Now, Bonnie's father is like oblivious on the train heading to work, right? He gets up in the morning, thinks she's sleeping, gets mm-hmm. dressed. Cause, yeah, it's seven in the Off morning. Off he goes to work. Yeah. Her mother actually, so when the Scarsdale police show up, the, her mother answers the door and has no idea anything's wrong. And when they told her what they believed happened, she ran up the stairs to Bonnie's room with them right behind her. And she did find Bonnie bloody, gurgling, unconscious, but she was alive. Oh, wow. And the attack was so brutal that there was brain matter on the ceiling. Oh, God. So in any reports of this, there's no mention of the new boyfriend in anything. It's like Bonnie and her siblings and her mother are home. So I'm going to guess that maybe once he heard that Heron was coming, he took off. Maybe. Possibly. Or was she just saying to him that the boyfriend was staying when he really wasn't just to make him go away? Yeah, maybe he was just with them for the day. Right. The police pick Heron up. When he's in police custody, the officers tell him that Bonnie was still alive. And he screamed, no, it can't be. She has to be dead. I don't believe it. She has to be dead. Her head split open like a watermelon. The hammer stuck in her head and I had to pull it out. What? So like the claw part stuck in her head and he had to pull it out. There's like no remorse. No, he's like upset that she possibly could be alive. Upset that she possibly could be alive. That's disgusting. And this is hours later, right? Let's, this isn't like immediately after. So he's had like a cooling down period. Right. Of probably, you know, this happened at 2 a.m. And this has got to be. I'm going to go with six or seven hours later because right, maybe by the time he gets to the church, the police, the whole thing. I would be happy or relieved. Like, okay, maybe the stupid thing I did, um, you know, maybe there's a possibility yeah, this... that she can still be alive. Well, unfortunately, the surgeons did work for about three hours on Bonnie. And at 10.38 p.m., with her mother holding her hand, she, she died. And she was only 20 years old. Ugh. She was a baby. But you know what? I think that that's better because had she survived, she would have been a vegetable. Fake that you're upset, even if you're not. Right. Well, and also, right, because I already know where this is going. I already know he's going to plead insanity, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But how long does insanity last? Right. That's Temporary my question. Insanity. Okay. Tell me what happens next, and then I'll ask my question. Well... So he's indicted for second degree murder and some lesser charges. And he does enter a plea of not guilty by virtue of temporary insanity. So not just insanity, right? He's not saying that's how he is. He's saying it was a temporary thing. Right. Which doesn't explain his behavior the next day. His response to me is also insanity. So you're saying what you're just, okay, if you were arguing that you're just insane in general... But to say temporarily insane means that I don't know how technically how long a temporary insanity duration of time is. Like if he said, I'm insane. uh, Yeah, you probably are. I'm temporarily insane. I, I just I never understand that. Because you're you said what you said, which is like, oh, my God. She's so are you still insane at that point, according to yourself? Because you just totally fucked yourself by saying, oh, she has to be dead. She has to be dead. Sorry, never mind the temporary insanity. But then it's also the, the you know, the remorse factor. And there, there's so many things to look at here and the premeditation. In defense of, of that aspect of it, right? He, it's not like he came there 
with the idea of doing that, it just kind of, so he says, came to him a little while before he did it, and he used a weapon that was in the house. So it's right. like he brought something. So is that still premeditated? I mean, they say, right? Don't they say, like, premeditation could be one minute? Right. So I think okay. it was premeditated. Of course it was premeditated, because he thought about sat it. Sat there with the magazine. He went down. thought about it. He got the weapon. Right. I, I did listen, the insanity, whatever, I'm just, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just a, a, a something that's going to go in circles, but I'm just curious as to what time frame are we looking at here for a plea of temporary insanity? Could you be temporarily insane for three days? Could you be temporarily insane for, you know, only a couple of minutes? I think both. Okay. I think it's just subjective. I guess at what point does it go from temporary to just insanity that's my question and i don't know if we know that well I, again like in our last case when you see he was he was obsessing over her and he was mm -hmm. not taking no for an answer but again how many times have we seen that and people don't kill the other person so this is the kind of second time in a row that we're we're seeing this from like case to case wow. of this type of right. behavior but okay so i went off on a tangent but i was just curious so let's see what happens here all of his friends at yale and some of his family and just other people just connected to yale started a letter writing campaign asking for bail to be set the Christian brothers offered to house him and supervise him if they would release him on bail. Because of all of this, bail was set at only $50,000. Heron's Yale friends got 11000 together. And then a doctor that was just curious about him, she was affiliated with Yale. She went and met with him in jail and then pledged her house for the rest of the bail. So on August 11th, he was released He's on not bail. saying he didn't do it. So... Right. He's saying he did it. He's free on bail only 35 days after the murder. And there's no psychiatric examination or they're not addressing any issues. I'm like, if you're pleading insanity, that should be required before you of can make course. bail. Of course. How could there be no psychiatric examination? Well, thank God he doesn't do anything, right? He's out. And I, I'm sure the Christian brothers kept him in and... There's not much reported on what he was doing while he was out, but I just think that's such a slap in the face to her family. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But did he did he serve jail time? Oh, well, yeah, he's got to go to trial. Okay, right? so what happened? So at the trial, the judge was Richard Duranco. Oh. You remember him? Our Pelham Episode friend. 63. Uh-huh. Yep. So the defense pled, now they're changing their plea to extreme emotional disturbance, which I think is basically temporary insanity, just the right way to say it. Okay. So extreme emotional disturbance is basically that the defendant was under the influence of an extreme emotional disturbance and that there is a reasonable explanation or excuse for that disturbance. So you have to look at his subjective mental condition and then the external circumstances as he perceived them. Sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo, but I guess... Well, I think that that's ridiculous, though, because they're basically saying that there's a reasonable explanation. So he had some kind of an extreme emotional disturbance. So that's a, that's a reasonable explanation for what he did. Well, I think 
his mental condition at the time is taken into account. And then as he's perceiving what's happening, that's, if that's reasonable, then he gets a lesser it's ridiculous. Charge. They're not saying he didn't commit a crime. They're just saying it's not second degree murder. I know, but I hate all that crap. First degree, second degree. It's fucking murder. Like he did it. So what? It, it, it's not, it's not, it's only, it's second degree if you are temporarily nuts. Well, no. On June 18th, 1978, Heron was convicted of first degree manslaughter. Oh, okay. And sentenced to a maximum of 25 years. So that's even under second oh, degree There murder. are excuses for situations like that. Now I'm getting pissed. There are excuses for situations like that. This one's not one of them. You know, when you see people who go and and kill or harm i'm not saying it's right but you can understand it when someone you know if if somebody killed my child or raped my child and then people go temporarily insane and that's that makes sense to me this kind of temporarily insane doesn't make sense to me that means somewhere in your core you have the capacity to do this again which means that you can sometimes become temporarily insane in certain circumstances. Right, if the right buttons are pushed. So he's convicted of first-degree manslaughter, right, you said, and he's sentenced to a maximum of 25 years. And this was in 1978. He is released after serving only 17 years. So on January 12, 1995, he's just 40 years old. Ugh. He brutally murdered someone and he's free if she was also went to yale right if you want to do apples to apples okay she didn't graduate from yale right she ended up leaving but she was a yale student so if you're going to support him who's supporting her well i think that was the family's uh main thing they were like Hell our daughter yeah. got brutally murdered and he's getting the sympathy mm, i'm an angry little support. elf today so 40 years old in 1995, he's out. And he moves to New Mexico for a fresh start. And he worked at a mental health foundation. And I guess, I mean, he stayed out of trouble. Okay, so may, maybe listen, it was a one-off. That, that's all well and good. But he gets a fresh start. She does not. She's fucking dead. Mm -hmm. And that's what pisses me off. Sorry. I'm angry at this one. All right. We'll be mm -hmm. back in a week. Yes, we will. I need a genre. All right. Oh, country. No I can't do it. Mm, it was a nefarious New York. Yeehaw. Hold on. <laughs> Here! We'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.